is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen, amen. Let's read from John chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10, and then we're going to look at the end of the chapter 30 and 31. Let us hear the word of the Lord together this morning. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they, they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, both, um, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying there, and the face cloth, which was, has been, was been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other people, the other disciple, excuse me, then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw, and he believed, for as yet he did not under, they did not understand the scriptures, that they must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. And then verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not yet written, are not written in this book. But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, let me, uh, let me first say, offer my additional welcome to those who are new here this morning. Maybe you visited us Easter Sunday, or you're from out of town, or perhaps you've just found us and you're living in the area and you're looking for a good church. And whatever the circumstances are, whatever reason you're here this morning, I just want to say thank you for being here. It is an honor to have you, and we hope that you have been warmly welcomed. And uh, as Jordan said, I do hope that you will spend a few minutes afterwards just fellowshipping. We are a very warm and loving church. I believe that with all my heart, and it has been proven true over and over and over again. Well, here we are on Easter Sunday, and, uh, you know, I, I feel like it's important, since we had a Good Friday service, to try to tie to my best of my ability what we talked about Good Friday, and then bring that into this morning as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And so I began Good Friday service asking a question what is good about Good Friday? And we spent the time discussing what that means. And this morning, I want to ask a similar question of Easter. So what's the big deal about Easter? Let's just really just lay it out clearly and plainly this morning. What is the big deal about Easter? Why do we make a big deal about this Sunday? And frankly, every true church makes a big deal about this every other Sunday, that conclusion. I mean, consider all the hours you log in at work. Consider every dollar you earn or save towards your 401k plan. Um, every goal, basket, touchdown, whatever sport is your flavor, home run that you uh, score in your sport of choice. Every A you may earn, students in class, or B, for some of us underachievers like myself. Um, Every pound you may seek to lose, every religious activity you employ for this purpose, you do it because you know something inside of you says, 
Something must be righted. Something must be fixed. Something must be changed. All of these, are they not some form, some form of resurrection? Some form of, I, I think I've got to change in my life. And again, they're good things, right? Let's be clear. These are very, very good things. These are not things that you and I should be ashamed of, and by and large, except for one way, one thing, when we make them gods, when we make them the source of resurrection exclusively, or in, frankly at all, when we make them the hope and satisfaction for those deepest longings of our heart, when we look to those things to justify us and make us right before God or before others, any of these methods that we employ if we're honest with ourselves, are just ways in which we try to prop up our own righteousness. And so that's the main idea that we want to talk about on Easter Sunday. And we want to do this every Easter Sunday. We want to do this, frankly, on pretty much every Sunday. The resurrection of Jesus reminds us all, every one of us in this room, without exception, that any attempts, all of our attempts at self-resurrection are insufficient. And only Christ, only in Christ do we find true and lasting life in his resurrection life. That's what the resurrection offers you and I this morning. That everything that you pursue in life, though they can be good, and some of them unfortunately are bad, they are attempts to do what only Christ has done for those who believe by faith. That's what resurrection means. That's why Easter Sunday matters because here's the deal and just you know some of this may seem elementary but i hope it doesn't i hope we can never get over this but we need to be always be reminded of the narrative that defines everything about us because the bible tells us what that narrative is and informs us historic christianity has been built up on this it teaches us that our first parents and we all know the story but let's let's wrestle with it again fresh and new this morning our first parents rebelled against god our first parents committed treason against God. They rejected him as their sovereign and rightful ruler and creator of their life. Adam and Eve, who were made in the image of God, given stewardship over all of creation, they believed the lies that the serpent spilled into their hearts and minds that day in the garden, and they have been embedded there in the human genome ever since. Those lies like, does God really love me? Does God really want the best for me? Could I not better govern and oversee my life in ways apart from God? These are all fundamentally at the root of everything mankind has attempted to do since the garden. Everything. Apart from Jesus, this has been our aim. And so because of this, Adam and Eve were banished from the garden. That means mankind was, uh, was rightfully separated from God, and that curse, that's what it is, reverberates throughout human history ever since. It's as plain as I can make it. You think about generational curses, well, this is the generational curse. It flows through every, throws through the very nature of all human identity, and you and I, no matter through the best attempts that we have, cannot overcome it. And so again, as I said before, the reason why Easter Sunday is, exists is because it reminds us that there's not one thing you and I do since that gener generational curse has been put in place because of our sin and rebellion against God. 
whereby mankind is not pursuing, whether consciously or unconsciously, to recover from the curse of the fall and therefore achieve what? Resurrection. So Easter Sunday matters, to go back to the question, precisely for the same reason that Good Friday matters. Except we advance on Good Friday. We know that we can't do it. Therefore, we need a substitute Savior. Everything that we talked about on Good Friday, the Bible reveals this to us, that we need a substitute who can truly satisfy the demands of God for us. And we know that that substitution, substitute is Jesus and Jesus alone. He lived the life that you and I were supposed to live, have not lived. He died the death that we were supposed to die. But in Christ, we do not have to die because we have faith in him if you trust in him this morning. But more gloriously, again, advancing on Good Friday is what? He rose from death defeating the curse of our rebellion, the sin and the grave that defines everything about us so that you and I can have new life. As simply as I can put it, Good Friday tells us that Jesus is a substitution. His death satisfies all that God demands. Easter tells us he grants us and guarantees us new life because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. That's what we are here for this morning. And so as we think about John 20, and we're going to look at John 20 in its entirety, but somewhat at a high level this morning, I want to look at four reasons in John 20 that will remind us of the resurrection's abiding um, necessity and relevance in your life and my life today. If you're a believer in here this morning, this is for you. If you're a person here saying, I don't really know about the church deal that much, this is for you too. Perhaps... God brought you here so that you could hear these four things. Not because I'm a genius at it, because I'm truly not, but because the Bible is clear. And I want you to see the, the clarity of the scriptures this morning. We look at John 1 through 10, we see the first reason that the resurrection is both historical and factual. It's historical and factual. Without having to go back and reread it, here's, this, here's the, the, the short end of it. The women go to the tomb, they find the stone removed. Mary Magdalene runs back with her mind all in a tizzy and she frantically goes to Peter and to the disciple they talk about there. He's actually John, the one who wrote this gospel. The one he, you know, seems to think Jesus plays favorites. He's the one Jesus loved, right? Um, but yeah, he goes, she goes back to these two disciples and their minds and hearts are fluttering with unbelief. And Peter and John quickly then run out like they're in a, some kind of race, like, like my sons will just try to compete with one another. They're racing to the tomb to figure out what's going on out there at the tomb. And it tells us that they find the tomb the way that they, Mary Magdalene described it. And you find that John's the one leaning in. He doesn't go in. He sees it. He sees the linen cloths there on the, where the where place where Jesus laid. And this word saw is very important. He saw. It's not just... A kind of seeing like you see physical things, like you and I physically see sight. But it's a kind of saw, like if you look at it in, in the Greek, it is that he's critically considering what does this mean. That's, that's, what G, that's what John is doing when he saw what he was taking in in that moment. Because he was paying close attention to the details. And you and I would do well to pay close attention to the details as well. Because this hardly looks like what was probably assumed that that grave robbers had come and taken Jesus' body out of the tomb. It hardly looks like anything other than something that they can't explain. 
They would, I mean, seriously, why would grave robbers, which by the way, grave robbers, what did they, why do they rob graves? Just because they're weird and they like dead bodies hanging out in their house? No, they went to graves because a lot of times people's riches and things would be left there and they'd want the linens and they'd want these things for themselves. But the very linens that were robbed, Jesus, were, were still there. Jesus' body is not, but they're still there. So why would they not only not take the linens, but let, hey, let's just leave this place. You know what? We've made a mess, you know? We at least should do these people a favor and fold up the linens nice and neatly over here in the corner. And so, like, John instantly recognizes there's something afoot here. There's something not quite right. There's something bigger, I think, implied in this text in John's looking and seeing in that moment. And, and, and my guess is it's, it's what if, right? It's that could it be... No doubt their minds were kind of trying to go back and process everything that Jesus had taught them and told them over those last few days that he is discipling them. But here's what's even more peculiar. Is it right there in verse 10, it says, and the disciples went back to their homes. It's kind of like, right? Like they just went back. And, And here's why. Because they didn't understand everything that was going on there, and, and, they, and they just didn't know how to wire it. So they, they, they needed to go back and think about everything that they had seen and had heard. And so probably as they're going back, here's my thought. Again, this is in, in completely extemporaneous. They probably had John 16, 16 in their heads, right? A little while you will see me no longer, and a little while you will see me again. Here's the point. Just the point right here in verse 10. I mean, chapter, the first point here. The resurrection really happened. That's the big point. It really happened. And what's more fantastic is the reason, one of the ways we can deduce that this is it's a fairy tale that the disciples are just trying to propagate is because the very disciples who go to the tomb are not informed about everything that's happened. Like, they don't quite can't connect the dots themselves. They go there and they're they, they find that there's something not right. So, so this wasn't Jesus just getting his crew off to the side and going, hey guys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pull the wool over everyone's lives and we're gonna, eyes and we're going to like fake my death. No, these guys go to the tomb and are like, wait a minute. What's going on here? They weren't in on some rouge. Again, as I noted a minute ago, the author of the Gospel of John is John. He is the disciple that raced Peter to the tomb. And it is him that's going in here going, um, let's do the math, let's try to figure this out. And so when we see one of the first accounts about Jesus' resurrection coming from someone who was right there, physically right there, and he's given an account of this, this should necessarily lead us to believe that this is not some elaborate scheme cooked up between Jesus and his disciples, but rather that the resurrection of Jesus is a real and historical event. And because that's true, it changes everything. Because again, there's a lot more weight to the historical resurrection that I will not get into here, but he's, hundreds of people saw him. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. Hundreds of people had seen him since that time. And so there's, there's tons of other eyewitness accounts to this. That's not what we're here for. The point is, the very people who were closest to Jesus were not in on the plan. They've been told, Jesus has been teaching about it, but they quite frankly were, you know, a little hard-headed and didn't quite get it, did they? And so they show up to the tomb and are like, mm, this is not grave robbers. This is not something cooked up. This is like, something's up here. We need to process this. Let's go home. 
And so I just want to make sure you're, we're here and we're clear about something this morning. The Christian faith is not a religion that you can just throw into any old bowl you want to with any other religion or any other faith out there and just mix it all up and it all comes out the same. You know how you do when you bake a, you bake a cake. Like sometimes you, Amanda talked about the fact that she put a little bit too much sugar into the casserole this morning for this morning. And it's like, okay, well, you can do that and you can, you can fake it, right? You can get it, you can get there. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to call you out like that. But, um, you know, I'll probably hear about that later. But, you know, you put a little too much sugar in it, right? But you can still, like, it, it feels like it just kind of blends into everything, right? Well, that's what we treat religion sometimes. When we think the Christian faith, it's like we can just kind of blend it into everything else and it's all the same. But it's not. The Christian faith unilaterally makes an exclusive claim to be something uniquely different than any everything you've ever heard in your life. And ever since that day, there have been millions and billions of people who have followed Jesus because they cannot figure out why, why they can't get over the resurrection. They can't. And because of that, what that ultimately leads you and I to believe is something very, very important about God. That God is a powerful and personal God who's working behind everything you and I know, and he certainly lies behind the resurrection of his son, Jesus. It means that God is powerful. It means God intervenes in time and space, that he's not some aloof God that you and I can't know. He's a God who does want to reveal himself. He does want you to know him, and he makes it most clear through the resurrection of his son. Friends, this morning, I don't know where where spiritual reality, spiritual you know, uh, uh, um, experiences you've had. But friends, this isn't, this is, this, it doesn't get any clearer to this for the Christian. It doesn't get more, any more essential than this for the Christian because the gospel of Jesus is truly good news because of the resurrection. The second reason this morning that I want us to consider about why the resurrection has abiding relevance to your life is because it has, it has a hope-inducing reality in your life. If you were to look at the next few verses, Mary Magdalene, so you got the disciples who go home. Mary Magdalene, she's a little bit of a basket case, and, and I'm not going to read through the passage, but she stood there, and she's weeping outside the tomb. She doesn't know what to, how to compute any of these things. She looks in and she sees two guys there and they ask her, what are you weeping about? And of course, she's explaining to him, um, well, there's a guy here. He's not here anymore. You've taken my Jesus or who's taken my Jesus? Do you know where he is? And then she hears a voice behind her. And that voice knows her by name. And she knows that voice when she hears him say her name. See, God is not afraid to step into the darkest points of our life. See, for her, she probably thought this is some sadistic little way in which the religious leadership are trying to twist the knife and they're trying to create more despair in God's followers, Jesus' followers, so that they could just extinguish this whole movement outright. But that's not what Jesus has in plan in store. And it's not what God has in plan. See, his resurrection isn't some scientific phenomena. It's the healing balm to every broken heart, especially those of us in here this morning who feel like life can be a bit of a hamster wheel at times and we don't know how to get off of it. That life feels a little bit like, okay, a cruel joke, like, like Mary Magdalene probably felt in that moment. 
This is our God who steps into the cruel joke with you and I. And he brings true and lasting hope. Why? Because life is hard. I don't know if you figured that out yet or not, but life is hard. It just is. You know, we, we do some examples a few minutes ago. I'll give you a few more. Life's hard, like we say, in marriage. You know why? Because love is hard. If you've been married any amount of time, you've figured this out. You deeply love the person that you made a covenant commitment to in your life, but you found out really quickly that that love is not easy breezy all the time. And for all of us who are still wanting and longing for that, like that's one of the things that like me and men talk about all the time when we do premarital counseling with people. Like we want to just blow up any like romantic notion about marriage at all as quickly as we possibly can. Not because we're trying to discourage you from getting married, because we just want you to be prepared for the war that lies ahead. Life is hard. Jobs are hard. The grind of a job that you and I will slave over all in hopes of what future advancement, perhaps, or or, or a better paycheck. It's hard. Every one of us is feeling that right now. The feeling of emptiness that lies behind that kind of picture-perfect life that you want everyone to see, but you know is not exactly real. The well-manicured life, the, the good social media posts where everything looks nice and pretty, and the vacuous smiles of parents who live vicariously through their kids and their academic or athletic or some other thing else in their life. Life is hard. And there's more to life than faking it till you make it. And I feel like that's what the only option the world has is a fake it till you make it approach. And the Christian life says, no, you don't. See, we can pour ourselves over all these things and find as wonderful as they may be, but we all at some point come to the realization that they fail to satisfy. Right? That's the definition of idolatry. When we take things, they're good things. And we just make them God things. That's the best definition I have of idolatry. Good things that we take and make God things. But the resurrection reminds us that Jesus is the only healing balm to a hard life. To a broken life. To a rebellious life. Can we keep on pushing it back? Like the hard life is hard because of the rebellious life. The rebellious life is hard because ultimately we've rejected God. And Jesus comes to fix that and offer new life to his people, which we'll talk about here in a moment. See, the resurrection ensures that we have a God who enters right into life's deepest darkness, deepest frustrations with us. He loves us where we are, but he leads us gently towards where we, where he, where we should be, where he wants us to be. We live in a world that lacks, have you noticed this lately? Lacks confidence in virtually everything. Like, we've, we've lost confidence in marriage. We've lost confidence in the family. We've lost confidence in the jobs. We've lost confidence in the economy. We've lost confidence in our political leaders. We've lost, right? And rightfully so. Because then they don't last. And so we usually respond to that lack of confidence in one of two ways. One is, what I just mentioned ago, is kind of fake it till you make it, right? We keep doing the same things over and over again, expecting different results. Do you know that's the definition of insanity, right? To do the same thing over and over again, expecting the different results is like every scientist out there would say to you, well, that's just dumb. 
But isn't that the pattern of our lives? Isn't it the pattern of the world that we see around us? So some people get caught up in that trap. The vast majority of people are in that trap. But sadly, even now, though, we have people who are jettisoning confidence in virtually these lives of aspects of life. And therefore, what are they doing? They're redefining it. They're redefining humanity. They're redefining what it means to be human. And that's tragic. See, our mission at Grace Church is to lead people who are, who are and who are not yet Christians to get off that roller coaster. To be a safe place where followers and doubters and seekers, whoever you may be, whatever you might classify yourself in here this morning or people you run with, we want to be a place where people can come in here, hear the gospel, and it's become a healing balm to their soul so that they can get off of this, you know, hide-and-go-seek kind of life. We want people off of that. You know, I'm... I'm a, I'm a big doctrine nerd, you, you, most of you know that who are here, but I do fear at times that the church, if we're not careful, we will make the church into some kind of doctrinally or spiritually pure people, and we should aspire to grow in our doctrine, we should aspire to grow spiritually, we should aspire to grow in sanctification, which we talked about a few weeks ago, that is true. But friends, we are not erecting a museum to those kinds of people. We're not erecting a museum to those kinds of doctrinally pure and spiritually pure saints out there in the world. That's not what people should see when they see the church. No, rather the church should be seen more as um, the the triage unit that is sent out into the battlefield during war. who Who are providing grace and mercy for sinners who are weary of the war. That's what the church is. The church is a triage unit. In the middle of war. I, people say church is a hospital. I just don't think that does enough for me. Like triage unit means you're putting yourself at risk. Right? You're out there in the middle of the battlefield. In the middle of the war with weak and weary sinners. And you are saying there is grace. There is mercy. There is love. There is hope. There is life change for those who are tired of wartime. And friends, the world will never know anything but wartime until Jesus returns, when the final war begins, right? Jesus puts all those things to end. See, this is the character of our risen Savior. He's the Christ who was sent to share with us something more than the life we're living. He's the one who comes into the hope and I mean, the lack of hope and the despair that you and I have, and he provides and imparts to us new life. And that's the third reason I want you to know the abiding reality of the resurrection. There is new life imparted in the resurrection. So what we find here in verse 19 through 23 is that Jesus appears to the disciples in that room. And I I love it. Again, I'm not going to read over it specifically. I'll let you read it on your own. But the news of Jesus' resurrection is now beginning to spread. And where do we find the disciples? Under lock and key. In some room. They're huddled up in fear. They're not sure yet what to think about all of this news of Jesus' body being missing, missing in, in the resurrection. You know, man, Mary Magdalene had, at this point had went back and said, I've, met, I've seen the Lord, and they still didn't know what to do with this. So they're like really cowering in fear in this moment. Again, another reason why we can trust that the gospel, the, the resurrection is true, is because the disciples aren't afraid to show their, their worst parts 
in their stories about, you know, in their, in their accounts about Jesus. Like, the disciples usually don't look that good in these accounts. They got over themselves, I guess, when, they, when, when the Holy Spirit began to work, right? And this is why I love the Bible. It's those folks who think that Christianity is some religious amalgamation of thoughts about God that, who, that, that descended from clever men, you can't read this text and find that to be true. These are not clever men. Honestly, they're a lot like me. I'm, again, I'm, 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 I'm a bit hard-headed. Maybe you are too. And, and, and I, I'm not going to see sometimes the most obvious thing in front of me because I'm going to have my attention on other things. And that's what the disciples are like. So I get a lot of comfort from this. I look at these disciples and I'm going, man, I'm, like, they're not different from me. These are not super disciples. These are not super apostles. These are real men who... Who struggled to follow Jesus, to hear Jesus, to learn from Jesus. And so we get account of Jesus' resurrection, and they're hiding. And Jesus says, okay, fine then, I'm coming to you. And he walks into the room, under lock and key, comes into the room. And he comforts them with these words, peace be with you. He's not shaming them for hiding out. He's not shaming them for being confused. He's not shaming them for not having all their doctrine together or not listening to every word he said. He's not shaming them at all. What is he doing? He comes and he offers peace. This is our Savior. The very Savior who who, who paved the way through this peace through his cross, which satisfied the, the debt of our sin. That's the Jesus that you believe in this morning, church. This is a Jesus that you can have relation and communion with through his word and through the local church. This is who you say you worship. He offers you peace when you are at your worst place in life. This is the gospel. See, Jesus' resurrection appearance is an invitation into a shared resurrection life. And I just, I do want to see this. He says, peace be with you. And as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said these things, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they will be forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What is Jesus doing? He's sharing the resurrection life with his disciples who are hiding out in fear. Tell me that's not good news. Tell me that doesn't make your heart leap with joy. That is what we see here. So Jesus' appearance is an invitation to this resurrection life. It's what makes the church a unique people in the world. And it's not just an internally shared life where he imparts the Holy Spirit, as we see here, but he calls them to go preach the gospel. And he says, anyone you take the gospel to who believes will believe. I mean, that's what he's essentially saying here. And those who reject will not. That means even down to the mission that you and I are terrified to do. Terrified the conversations we want to have with people that we don't want to have conversations with because we're afraid that they're going to reject us. This Jesus has empowered you for, but he, he gives it to you in your worst moment, and he says, peace be with you. See, friends, the church is not just a religious Sunday activity. 
December. It's not less than that. But it's not just that. The church is not just an arbitrary religious activity or amalgamation of religious activities. I mean, look, we have people in this room this morning who come from every spectrum and various spectrums around our area. And, and frankly, that's why many people avoid the church. Because they think everyone's just the same in here. We're not. But Jesus gathers people from everywhere and he says, you're my people. And he says to you, no, he shares his life with you. He, he shares it with you so that you and I may share it with others. This is why we tell people a healthy family is a growing family, right? I mean, families that don't grow die out, right? So a healthy family is the one that wants to reproduce. Like, I mean, like, you know, we have kids. They're not meant to just stay in our house forever. They're meant to get out. And I'm not being, because I, I, I want you to stay. I love you, I, I, but not very long, okay? Why? Because you, you're going to get married. And you're going to have kids. And you're going to have your own households. All for the glory of God. And friends, the same thing is true here. We can't just become our own little insular little family. We want to produce more families. There is a time coming. I hope and pray. I talked to folks. We talked, I've talked to, I can't tell you how many times I've talked about this with Josh, about how I'd love to see us plant churches further south and more in the rural counties down towards Manchester or towards Shelbyville or whatever, because I just feel like God's bringing us people. And at some point, he wants us to go and send more people out and plant more churches out there. The family must grow if we're going to be a healthy family. And this is what Jesus has in this context. He fills them with the Holy Spirit and he sends them out there to offer forgiveness of sins in the work, and, and work of Jesus. This is what the church does. So if you're here today and you're wondering what this church is all about, we share with you the resurrection. That's it. The resurrection life. We're not here... We're not in some game to just let people into a building on Sundays, but this gathering is more than a religious activity. It's a shared resurrection life. And that leads me to the last point. Because Jesus then gets into, then the next place is, okay, the disciples are like, whoa, what just happened? Wait a minute, Thomas wasn't here. We gotta go find Thomas. We gotta tell him what happened. And they go find Thomas. And what does Thomas do? Thomas's response is, "I will not believe this until I put my hands, fingers in his hands, and, and, and my fingers into his side." And I love it because Jesus then appears to them, appears to him with him in the room, and he says, "Hey, hey, Thomas, here's here's my hands. This is what you need, right?" Again, he didn't do it in a mocking way. He, he's like, okay, this is what you need. Here it is. Here's the, here's the wound. And there's no indication in here that Thomas ever touched Jesus. He saw Jesus. He saw Jesus' nearness, and he says, my God, I believe. That's, this is what he says, right? Put your fingers in here. See my hands. Put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord, my God. He says, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed is the one who don't see me. And that's an ode to anyone who wasn't in that room today. That means everyone who wasn't in that room today can still believe. And they don't have to be in the room to believe. 
You don't have, listen, friend, you don't have to be with Peter and John in the room with Jesus that night in order for you to believe that Jesus is your resurrected king. That promise and an invitation right now for you is to believe now. To trust now that Jesus is enough for you. See, here's the wonderful truth about Christianity. It's not a, it's not a faith, and, and listen, I, I hope this will free you up. It's not a faith that just heaps on kind, all kinds of requirements onto your shoulders and makes you have to run through this little gauntlet in order to be acceptable to God. No, it's just simply believing. And believing is faith. Faith is trust. Trust is leaning on a Savior, a living Savior that changes us. But friend, I'm going to tell you right now, you have to believe. You have to. That's the, third, that's the last reason I want to give you this morning. The resurrection destroys doubt. And it calls us to believe. See, you don't have to see to believe, but here's, friend, you have to believe, you have to, you have to believe to see. We saw that all the way back when uh, uh, our brother Ben talked about this in, in Roman, I think it was John 8 or 9, and he, he preached this back in October about the blind man. Now, you don't have to see to believe, but you must believe to see. And what must you see when you believe? You must see, one, God is a good God who makes all things good. God didn't make a mistake in creation. Our world likes to believe that these days, right? But he didn't make a mistake in creation. He didn't make a mistake in you. Two, he made you, more than that, in his own image, but you and I have all rebelled against that image. Every last one of us has. Three, that our rebellion is the sole reason for the polluted state of all humanity has been in ever since. That's the answer. But four, God in his mercy and grace covenants to rescue a people for himself. And you can be a part of that people if you're not right now. See, this is what we see when we believe. A good God who made us in his image, whom we have rebelled against, but in his mercy, in his mercy, he saves sinners from hell. That is our God. And that is why the resurrection is so important. Because when you are saved from hell, there is nothing you, better you can do than have your life changed by the resurrection of our King Jesus. See, these are written, it says there in verse 30 and 31. This is the grand crescendo of the entire Gospel of John. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not yet written in these books, are not written in these books, but these are written. These, 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 the resurrection account, this is written so that you might believe. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Church, do you get this? I hope this like, drives the gospel, drives the resurrection life deeper into your heart so that you might have new life. So let's finish up. I feel like the resurrection does two things here this morning. It confronts and it connects. And here's what I want to do in terms of confronting. 
confronting believers. Believers, church, the resurrection reminds me, it reminds us that of our ever-present need of Jesus' resurrection in our life. You never get over the resurrection. Ever. You just don't. It's not just some static doctrine that you believe. The resurrection compels us to a new, a renewed daily life in the resurrection power of Jesus. I, I know you've heard it. Like, the reason I don't go to church is because of those hypocrites over there. And here is the thing that every one of us can say right here, right now. I am the chief of sinners. This is what Paul said of himself. Don't be afraid of your moments of hypocrisy. But glory in the fact that your God loves you in spite of it. And that the resurrection life continues to make you new each and every moment of every day of your life. See, we desire grace, as I've already said, to be a safe place where people come, ask real questions, sit under the word of God as we explore it together week after week. And here's the thing. I'll make you a promise. I'll, I'll, uh, I, will, I will just want us to recognize in this. It's the resurrection life that we feed on each and every week as the church and in our small groups and everything. Let me just say this to you, brother and sister. Like, look, you need more, never less, but you need more than just to show up and sit in a room on Sunday mornings for an hour. You need the body of Christ. Why? Because the body of Christ is always feeding on the resurrection life. You need a small group. You need a Sunday school class. I know you're thinking, oh, here comes a pastor. He's loading all kinds of things on my shoulder. No, I'm not. I'm just telling you, you need the church. The most glorious thing, we haven't had an Easter breakfast since 2019. But I'll tell you what, right now, we enjoy each other in here, don't we? Because there's something about the resurrected life that produces that. It produces that. So the Easter message, the Easter truth confronts, but it also connects. And perhaps you're here this morning and you might say, I'm not yet a Christian, or perhaps you're not much of a church person, or perhaps, you know, I went to church a long time ago, but I really haven't been in church that much in my, in my life. And I, and I just want to say to you kindly and graciously to say, I get it. It's so easy to let life just get us off the railroad track. It just, it is, it is. And so I just want you to know, like, there, there's no judgment in that. There's no judgment in that. But I also don't want to make sure you know that, it, that, you, that we don't believe in this room that um, uh, come to church a, a few times and you're good with Jesus' approach to life. No, what we, what we believe more than anything is that if you come and participate in the body of Christ long enough, you will meet Jesus. And I want you to meet Jesus. If you don't, we will love you and be your friend. That's not going to change anything. I made that promise to some men in this room right now who, who, who came to Christ as a relation, just relationship, and they eventually came to Christ, but I made comments to them directly, and they know who they are. Like, if you don't get here, I'm, I'm going to be your friend. I'm going to love you. You're still going to be part of my life. But I guarantee you that if you sit long enough in it and you consider the ramifications of resurrection, you're going to meet Jesus, and I want you to meet Jesus. But you, meeting Jesus is more than a one-time event where you walk an aisle and say, I, you know, I'm good with Jesus. Like, no, it's, it's, a, it's a lifestyle. It's a lifelong pursuit. And we would invite you to walk with us toward Jesus. That's all this is. Walking with us towards Jesus together. So yes, you too can have new life. Guys, this morning, as we prepare for the Lord's table, and Josh is going to come up and lead us in this, I do hope that your heart is deeply encouraged by the power of the resurrection.
And if you're here this morning and you have not yet met Jesus or not yet a Christian, we don't do, an, we don't do a responsive call. We don't have people come here weeping in the aisle. We just don't do that. It's not our thing. But we do want to make sure we give you an opportunity to, to have a conversation, ask questions. And so me, Josh, who will be up here in a minute, Delon, who's back in the pool, that back there. We've got Gabe, we've got Jester right here. These guys are our elders. They would love to have a conversation. And you know what? It doesn't have to be one of our elders. There's lots of people in here who would love to talk to you about Jesus. We just hope that whatever it is that God providentially brought you here this morning so that you yourself might come to meet the Savior that has changed everything about our lives. Amen? Amen. God help us.